Hey everyone, and welcome to the Capitalize for Kids podcast, where we interview Canadian leaders in business and philanthropy. This week, we speak with Bruce Croxon. Bruce is a Canadian entrepreneur who co-founded Lava Life in 1988. Bruce was a dragon on Dragon's Den and heads a venture capital firm in Toronto called Round 13 Capital. We spoke to him about getting Lava Life off the ground, the struggles as an entrepreneur, life as a dragon, and the tech ecosystem in Canada. We hope you enjoy this episode, and here it is. So what was the genesis of uh, Lava Life? You know, how, how did that come to be? What you know, transpired in your life before that for you to come up with that idea, for you to find that team? Like, what were some of the, the events that, that led up to that? Lava Life really wasn't my idea. Um, I'm not an original idea guy. My strengths are more uh, related to seeing stuff and saying, you know what, that's a good idea. And I think I can help make that a reality. And that's pretty much what happened with the original version of Lava Life, which started out on the telephone in the late 80s with a brand called Telepersonals. And, you know, for our French listeners, we had a Tele Rendezvous, which was uh, the French service. And, you know, it, it really was the brainchild of two high school friends, uh, Dave Shimandi and Ed Lum. And by a set of circumstances, we ended up in business with my, myself and one of my high school friends. Uh, ended up in business with them, um, and you know we got in really early on that on the idea. But I thought from the beginning that it was an idea worth getting behind. Uh, and and what was that original idea? Well, the original idea was basically uh, vo- it, it, the equivalent technology um, and the killer app for the technology has turned out to be voicemail, right? So it really is, uh, you know voice mailboxes that were set up where people could run personal ads and while they were online checking to see if anyone had left them a message they could also send messages back and forth to each other so you know in many ways uh, i would argue that it was the first social network in the world and it came right out right out of toronto canada um, and when the internet this this pipe started to become commercialized in the mid 90s because we had so much experience about how people spent time, quote unquote, online, you know, just to happen to be a phone line instead of a, an internet pipe, um, we didn't see a big difference. And sure enough, we were, you know, the first mover in the web personal space to any, you know, great, great scale. And we started to realize that whether people were wanting to meet over the phone and, and chat or on the internet and then back to mobile as it evolved, um, they were all looking for the same thing, you know. People want want to be it's together. I mean, I, I remember that. I, I think often of that guy named Maslow, right? He had that thing called the hierarchy of needs. And basically, what this guy said was, you know, we all need food in our stomach and water. If you don't have that, you can't survive. So that's at the very bottom of your hierarchy of needs. But once you've got your stomach full, um, the next thing you're looking for is a roof over your head. Uh, especially in Canada, right? I mean, it's you can do it without a roof over your head, but it's tough, you know, like think about Winnipeg, Toronto, Montreal in the wintertime. Feel bad for people that don't have a choice. Like you want a roof over your head. And third step up on the hierarchy needs is you're looking for someone to lie down beside at night, right? It's just a basic human need. So, you know, so many of the ideas that I come across in my career have struggled to 
fix a problem or address a basic human need. So if, you, if you've got a business idea that has to do with food, shelter, or dating, you know, or being with someone, you know, you're already halfway home because you're not, you're not like you're inventing something that somebody doesn't need, right? You need that stuff. And did you, did you know this before, or is this something kind of, you know, Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, you're looking back and you're like, wow, like that was a great idea because of that. Or, or no, did you see no, that? God, you know, I wish, you know, it's all, it's all 2020 in hindsight. Right. But I mean, we were kids fooling around with the technology. How old were you? Uh, early twenties, you know, and, and, and watching, watching, uh, you know, it was the first time we take it for granted now, but it was really the first time that technology was being used to measure people's behavior, right? So we could come in on a Monday, hit print on a DOS-based computer, and have printed out what section of the telepersonal site people hung out on, right? So at one time we were running personals, dine line, you know, entertainment hotline for what bands playing where in town. And you know, we, we, we started to see over time, every time we hit print, that you know, people didn't really care who was playing at the horseshoe, but give them a chance to you know, get a date Friday night and you've got a, a message in your inbox from seven different women, you're logging on, right? You're, you're gonna go find out you know, who those women are and it's just a basic human need. So we, we learned over time that that's where the action was and really kind of stumbled into you know getting making sure we got behind that as the main thing we were doing so I spent the next 15 years at, at different points of that period leading the online dating evolution um, we were in the right place at the right time you know had a couple of uh, hiccups um, you know I, I really look back on lava life and you know never never got above 100 million in sales should have been a billion dollar company I can look back and see where you went one way and you should have gone another. I took off for a couple of years to ski, you know, so I mean, you know, life's, life's about more than, you know, just having the blinders on, right? So, um, but, we, but it turned out to be a very good outcome for us and our shareholders. And, you know, Lava was bought in uh, 2004 for 180 million-ish Canadian, right? So that is a good outcome for you know, four guys with not a lot of formal business experience between them and, uh, and uh, you know, sort of beyond our wildest dreams. Did the, uh, the founders of, of Tinder ever, you know, reach out and thank you for, for being for the pioneer? paving the way? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's funny. No, no, they, they never did. No, no. but I mean, I, and I, look, I look at the industry now, you know, I thought we were pretty smart at the time. And, you know, truth the industry hasn't evolved a ton since we exited in 2004. I mean, Tinder is really the, the height of the innovation in that space. And that's really just swipe right, swipe left, swipe left. I mean, it wasn't a huge, a huge breakthrough, right? But the, you know, the guy in the space that I have a ton of respect for is a guy named Marcus Friend, you know, and he started the, the site called Plenty of Fish. Uh, you know, when we were all merrily walking along um, charging people subscription and transaction fees to participate in the in the activity online you know he came along and then all of a sudden offered everything for free at a very low overhead and you know his top line was a fraction of what ours were but he but he made a lot more money and at the end of the day he sold for a lot more money right so you know I'm, I tip my hat to a guy like that just sort of lied in the weeds looked at the data 
you know, kept his head down. You know, it wasn't about the flash. And, you know, he, he, he was a, you know, a true disruptor in our space for sure. And, and in 04, you sell the company on, do you remember, like, you sell it, what do you do the next day? You wake, you, you wake up. Oh, man. Well, the next day I went in and told the staff, we'd, you know, all these people that we'd, we'd worked with over the years that it was a changing of the guard. So, you know, I felt a little emotional about it, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I was 15 years, more or less, doing the same thing. And as an entrepreneur, that is, that's a lifetime. So... I was happy. Um, I actually agreed to stay on for two years as the CEO. Uh, lasted, you know, a year and a half, the longest year and a half of my life. Because, um, you know, I think we really did sell at the top of the space. Uh, and we were bought by a, by a, you know, relatively small public company. It was under a billion dollars. So, you know, one of the, one of the downfalls of, uh, of uh, public companies is, you know, you often make short-term decisions that aren't necessarily in the best interests of the long-term of the company because you're trying to appease quarterly shareholders. And, you know, Lava Life used to get their media budget cut every quarter as they're trying to, as, you know, the overall company was trying to make their numbers, et cetera. So it wasn't, wasn't the, the best experience of my life, but I'm proud to say that uh, the guy that was the CEO at the time that bought the company, I you know, shook his hand, said I'd stick around, and I did. And uh, him and I have remained very good friends to this day. So I think that's the way you do it. Touching on something you just said about uh, the next day was emotional. I wasn't expecting that response. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess most people think, you know, you sell a company for, you know, 100, 200, 300 million dollars. You wake up the next day, you go buy an island. Uh, mm -hmm. You wake up the next day and you're emotional about it. Uh, you're coming in to, to, to face the staff. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that side of perhaps selling a company that most people might not realize? Well, sure. I mean... You know, we had a, an exceptional culture at Lava Life, and we put a, an extraordinary amount of time into making sure that, you know, if you were a Lava Lifer, like you came to work at the company, you looked like that. Like, look, you, you were this type of person, right? You were open-minded, you were hardworking, you were a continuous learner, you know, you left your ego at the door, you're a team player. So there was, a, there was an incredible sense of ownership that everybody that worked at that place had. And, you know, because they worked so hard and we spent so much of our time there, we became very close, right? You become like a family. And, you know, no matter how it was gonna go from the time we sold, one thing was for sure, it was gonna be different, right? And, you know, whenever you've had a great experience with great people doing the right thing, you know, any abrupt change is going to bring stuff up. And it was that change that, you know, made me, you know, a little bit melancholy and it was kind of bittersweet, right? Yeah, yes, we'd had created a big payday and we were happy, our shareholders were happy, but a big part of me was, oh man, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be different without you all, you know, around me every day or diff differently around me every day. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So... After, after that, how, how many years later did you get the call for uh, Dragon's Den? Well, I'd gotten a couple calls over the year for Dragon's Den, you know, and it's funny, people are, you know, f I hear all kinds of people saying, yeah, they asked me to be on the show, but I decided not to. The truth of the matter is they ask a lot of people. And when they were first kicking off the show, they asked me, um, I got a package inviting me to audition, right? So they ask a lot of people, but they make you audition, right? And... I was 
when they first asked me, I didn't respond. I, uh, the second time I didn't respond. The third time I did respond because I had a reason to want to go on television. And that was because I was thinking of launching round 13 and I wanted Canadian tech entrepreneurs to know that this is what we were going to do. And, La and Dragon's Den, you know, I didn't know how big, but I knew it was big, um, was a good vehicle to put the word out. So I took it very casually and, you know, was not fussed if I was going to do it or not. And I think when I went to the audition, that kind of, um, uh, you know, laid back approach to things came through on the camera. So in their view, the camera liked what they saw. What was the audition? What do they have you do? Do they, oh, they have some pitching? Yeah, they basically have three or four pitches and they watch what you have to say and how you say it. And Were you nervous? No. No, not at all. Right? Well, that, and I think that was the key. Like, I, I think I'd forgotten about the audition. Got a reminder call and I was on the other side of town. Wasn't dressed, you know, like I was going to be going on television. And I, I just think that, you know, I... I uh, it was meant to be, right, in some ways, right? Do you get nervous? You don't seem like a guy who, who gets too uh, nervous, I, you know, I would say. No, I don't. Not what, for cameras and stuff? Just anything. Like, like, do you t Am like, I a warrior? Yeah. Like, sure. You, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. How does that manifest? Um, it manifests in, uh, you know, sometimes driving people around me crazy with uh, wanting it to be right. Um, I have a tendency to, uh, as I'm, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic as a person and think things can get done, but when it, you get into the heat of it, I tend to think about the things that can't, that, that may go wrong, right? And I, and I make sure everyone's aware of those. And it, you know, reminds me of that title of a book called Only the Paranoid Survive, right? So, you know, you just, if you, I found that it's, it's, it, it hasn't served my sleep patterns well all the time, but it served me well in business to keep an eye on, you know, what could go wrong, right? So I, I'm a worrier. I've got two kids, you know, and one of my dad, my, my dad's famous sayings to me is, look, you know, you'll worry about these guys to, from the day they're born to the day you die, right? So, you know, I, I, I tend to worry a little bit. And how do but I don't get nervous okay, yeah. getting going on camera, yeah. right? That's nothing to worry about. I yeah. mean, my, one of my dad's other favorite expressions is, what's the worst that could happen? You know, the worst that could happen is you, they don't laugh at your joke or, you know, and the worst that can happen on the Dragon's Den is, is, is really nothing because it's heavily edited, right? There's hours of tape that they cut out in order to have you put your best foot forward, right? I mean, it's in their interest to make us look like the smartest people in Canada. And I can guarantee you we're not, but by the time they're done with the editing, it looks like we are. So, you know, knowing that, I mean, you say anything, it's not, you know, it's not gonna make the cut, right? What, what, what made a good pitch on, on Dragon's Den? Oh boy, well, good pitch, you know, there's two, there's two ways to look at it, right? Um, as I learned, uh, as a television show, what makes for a good pitch is very different than, you know, sometimes than what makes for a good business pitch. Like, you know, sometimes on the TV side, you know, there were some ridiculous concepts and ideas that we had a lot of fun with, right? And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, at the expense of the pitcher, um, but, you know, that made for really good TV. And, you know, and, and the producer of the show loved that because, 
it brought out some emotion in the audience, I'm assuming, right? But from a business perspective, what made for a good pitch was, look, somebody that came up was, you know, clear and articulate about the problem they were trying to solve, right? Back to my point about Maslow. I mean, if it's a real problem, it becomes a lot easier to get your head wrapped around it. And then, you know, how well did they present their, uh, their solution? And you know, some, there were some very good businesses that, uh, that ended up getting presented there. Um, you know, the show had gotten such a big reach that sometimes it was tough to close those deals because they got what they wanted. You know, there's going to get a lot of marketing support and sometimes they didn't need or want the money. And, you know, sometimes we changed our mind, sometimes they changed their mind, but I ended up doing some good deals on that show. Can I, can I ask how many, because I've heard that the closing rate is much lower off air than on air. And I think it varies by dragon, right? So some of the people said yes a lot and then closed very few. Some of the others like David Chilton were very measured about the ones he said yes to, did all the diligence work himself. So, you know, like me, I think, um, although I had somebody helping me, when we said we were gonna follow up with an entrepreneur, we did. Uh, and I would say, you know, I think I probably held my hand up between 60 and 70 times over three years and closed about 12 deals, which is, I think, a relatively high percentage of closing um, and probably was a little bit above average, if I had to guess. Now, I, I was there for three years. That may have changed uh, those ratios. Um, you know, Jim Treliving, for example, says yes a lot, but he's, you know, he's got a pretty uh, uh, brutal team in terms of what ultimately gets through, right? So they, you know, they, they have the capacity and the resources to do a lot of work uh, and he gets quite selective, right? But when, you know, when he decides to do a deal, he's off and running and he's in, you know? Dragging's in was, you mentioned it being a bit of a, a launch pad to round 13. Uh, can you tell me a bit about uh, round 13? Uh, sure. Maybe start from, from the name? Yes, so round 13 is named after an, a boxing match between my, one of my idols, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, and that match took place in 1975. It was called The Thrilla in Manila, and a lot of boxing fans think that the 13th round of that fight was the most brutal round of boxing in the history of the sport, you know, before and since. And essentially what happened in that round, they used to go 15 rounds, they don't do it anymore, but what happened in that round was that those two guys wailed on each other so badly that by the start of the 15th round, a round later, uh, neither, neither, neither fighter could get up to finish the, the fight. Basically, they were done, both of them. And when Ali heard that Fraser couldn't get up, you know, he basically staggered to his feet, led to one of the most famous Ali quotes of all time. It was the closest to death I've ever been. Uh, but by just by getting up, he won the fight. So, you know, we've turned that into a bit of a story that if you want to succeed as a, as a technology entrepreneur uh, today, you know, you're going to have to learn how to get up when you have the inevitable setbacks that you're going to have as you, as you go to grow a company, right? It's just anyone that tells you it's a straight line up to the right is, is really full of shit. It's not, right? It's, there's peaks and valleys, and sometimes those peaks and valleys are daily, sometimes they're weekly, but for sure they're monthly. And it's how you react when things aren't going that well, when you're in the bottom of it, um, that's I think is gonna go a long way to determine whether or not you're gonna make it. 
So Round 13 is a venture capital company. It's a fund that uh, looks for growth stage technology companies, Canadian-based. Um, I'm very focused on you know, making sure the Canadian entrepreneurs get access to the right levels of capital and expertise. And I think we've got more than enough to do in this country, and, it, and that's increasing. Um, and we looked to invest anywhere from $2 million to $6 million into companies that are ready to take that amount of money to increase the market penetration of something they've already started, right? And, you know, what we ask is that you've got enough customers that we can come in and do our work to see where the customers came from, you know, uh, how they're liking the product, i.e. whether they're going to stick around, and then we can sort of factor you know, how, how, how much those customers are going to be worth to the business over time. And, and it is part of your role um, also mentoring kind of some of those peaks and valleys? And We're really very hands-on. We're very, very, very hands-on our investments. We don't do a lot of them. We've got eight companies in our portfolio right now. And uh, yeah, they, all, they get our entire team. Like we are roll-up-your-sleeves, operator-led um, you know, like to think that if we catch the right company at the right time, that our advice can be meaningful because we've been through a lot of this stuff. Uh, and, and hopefully we can cut down on the number of mistakes that are made, right? But no matter what we do, you know, we can't inject grit, right, into somebody that doesn't have grit. You know, you've got to have, you know, just a relentless uh, desire to get back up. Right, and I think that's a big part of, of anyone succeeding. Well, I, and I was going to ask how much how much do you focus? Because I agree with what you just said, and I'd, I'd love to know how much you focus on the firm's culture. Because you mentioned that was you know something that you focus a lot on at, at Level Life was building that culture. Mm-hmm. How much do you focus on that in your portfolio companies? Well, I, I would say a lot, but the caveat is you know most of the time when we come into these companies. The, the, they're small enough that the founders are still doing a big chunk of the hiring. And that's not the tough stage because the founders generally have an intuitive knowledge on the kind of people they want around them. They may not have formalized it or written it down or, you know, blueprinted it yet. But where, where it really gets uh, important is when the company starts to scale fast enough that the founders, for example, aren't in on every hiring decision or they don't have the time to put into assessing whether somebody's going to be a culture fit. And at that point, you really need to knuckle down and say, okay, what is it that's you know, made us successful so far? What are, the, what are the, the, the ingredients or the qualities of the people that we think we're going to need to take it to the next stage? Let's take the time to define that, articulate it. And then really importantly, when we get, you know, 73 applications for the one job, because everybody wants to work in tech, you know, how are we going to screen for the things that we think are important? And, you know, the, the, the effort that you put into that, in my experience, uh, pays off in spades because I've seen a lot of, you know, uh, great ideas go to dust, right, with the wrong people, the wrong teams. And I've seen a lot of, frankly, mediocre ideas do okay, right? Because the people who are working on it are going to find a way, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to something you said earlier that relates to culture, which is, uh, you, know, you mentioned that you, you went skiing during your time at Lava Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly a decision for you to live versus work. Mm-hmm. How do you... How have you gone through your career balancing that, the, 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 the work-life balance? I mean, looking around this office, it seems like you, you certainly have a, 
joie de vivre. You know, you, you love to live. Uh, and, and how do you balance that with work? Because obviously you're a very successful entrepreneur and, and now you know, venture capitalist. How yep. do those things balance? Well, I can tell you what's worked for me, right? But I would hate to prescribe this as, as the way that it's got to be for everybody because, you know, work-life balance, I think it's, it's, it's tricky and it's elusive. And, you know, I've never been able to be passionately involved in something and then turn it off, you know, because the days ended or the end of the week's shown up, right? So for better or worse, the way I've worked is, you know, my philosophy on work-life balance has been work your ass off for 10 years, uh, sell something, reward yourself, take a year or two off, right? And then if you feel like it, go do it again. That's work-life balance to me. Now, I'm not talking about not exercising or if you've got a family, not spending time with your family, heaven forbid. But and I said that I don't know how I would have done growing Lava Life while raising two kids, which is why, why I may have been laid out of the gate on the, on the uh, fatherhood thing, right? I mean, it's, I think it's really hard. So, you know, my, my view has been, look, if you're in, you're all in. Um, you know, sure, take, take, your, take your breaks, get into a routine. You know, maybe it's Saturday morning where you tell yourself, I'm not going to look at my phone, right? Um, but Sunday after, after lunch, that's my time, right, to get ready for the week. I just very difficult to do in a 40-hour work week, and I don't see too many successful entrepreneurs that don't, that don't really have to put the time in, right? What advice would you give, because I think that's really good advice on the, on the work-life balance, what advice would you give to uh, you know, students coming out of school uh, who took a traditional, call it a, a BCom at, at one of the Canadian universities, what advice would you give to them in terms of where they should be focusing their career? Well, I think today more than ever before, it's really important to do what you love, right? Uh, because... Why now more than ever before? Because... Now, more than ever before, I think that to be successful at something, you're going to have to really put in the time, right? When I started Lava Life um, and telepersonals before that, the technology was big, it was expensive, uh, it was complicated, and it served as a barrier to entry. It kept other people out. It gave us time to think about, you know, how to grow. We still work seven days a week, but maybe we wouldn't have had to back then. Today, you know, especially in tech, which is where I spend my time, there's no barrier to entry with the technology, right? The cost has come out of it. It's, uh, it's no longer complicated, right? And therefore, you know, when you have an idea uh, that's worth working at, you got to move exceptionally quickly because the competition is going to be right on your heels. So it's, it, it's turned into much more of a sprint. And, you know, for better or worse, uh, it's being fueled by the fact that we're all connected with devices and we're, you know, we all, data, data is flowing 724. And if you're not taking advantage of it, I can guarantee you that your competitor is. So the unfortunate reality is, um, you know, you're going to have to be on it all the time to be good at what you do. And if you're loving the topic, then maybe when you're working on a Sunday, it doesn't feel so much like work. As an entrepreneur versus, you know, someone who, who works for a company, uh, it doesn't seem like you've ever really worked for anyone else in your life. Uh, and if it, it was a long time ago, it was a long time yeah. ago. And I, I guess I, I would ask you then, like, why did you make that decision to forever be an entrepreneur? 
Well, I, was, I think I was heavily influenced by my by my father, who showed up as an immigrant in this country with you know eighty two dollars and a grade eight education, uh, and then got to work right. And so my heroes from a very young age were it was men at that time usually. You know that uh, there was a generation of them that showed up here with with nothing but you know one one change of clothes on their back and made something of themselves. So I've always kind of idolized that. Um, couldn't replicate it uh, because, you know, my dad gave us a pretty good good start, um, but it didn't stop me from, you know, wanting to come as close as I could, right? Which was, I've always enjoyed startups and I've always enjoyed, you know, making something out of nothing. Uh, and it uh, it keeps me going. Like the, the, the journey of turning small companies into medium-sized companies is something that gets me excited. Any last words that you would you would give to a cohort of, of students, young professionals who might be listening to the podcast right now? Uh, I think we're in for more challenging times as it pertains to full time employment and uh, you know ha- a career path that your parents may have imagined or enjoyed for themselves. Because I think it's definitely evolving into a gig economy. Um, but you know, I maintain that human relationships are still very important. Robots aren't going to replace us all. And, uh, you know, I come back to, you know, follow your heart because, uh, follow your heart, I think, and the money will come, you know, I mean, it, it really will. And for goodness sakes, don't end up, you know, in a, in a, in a job for the wrong reasons because somebody else has expected you to do this or because you feel pressure that your peers are doing a certain thing. Um, and, and, you know, don't put too much pressure on yourself too early because it's, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And when I was 21, 22, 23 years old, I had no clue, you know, what I wanted to do. Right. And, you know, you, a friend of mine has a, as a, as a saying, he says, look, you know, if you hang around the hoop long enough, you'll catch a ball. Right. So hang around the hoop, have some fun, keep the pressure off. And then when you latch onto something you kind of like, Give it your all. Love it. Love it. Bruce, thank you so much for, for all the, the great stories, the great advice, and uh, your time here. Anytime, really boys. It. Good to see you. Nice to meet you guys. And that was our episode with Bruce Croxon. Thank you to Bruce for making that episode happen. This episode was produced by Eugene McCashew, and I'm your host, Evan Sequera. If you like this episode, please subscribe, like it, share it. We really appreciate all the support. For more information on Capitalize for Kids and the work that we do to improve the lives of children in Canada, please feel free to visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org. Tune in next week to our episode with a leader in the Canadian family office space, Elmer Kim.